Hey guys, Tucker here, co-host of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. Before we get into this week's show, I wanted to let you know that we're currently looking for more projects. So for any of you guys that listen to the show that may be an agent or otherwise that have a property that you're looking to sell, we'd love to hear from you. Obviously, we're looking to purchase properties that are maybe not best suited for the retail market or maybe they need to be redeveloped. So we do renovations and we do new construction so we could buy an existing home that maybe it smells like cigarette smoke, maybe it hasn't been updated in decades, maybe it's got some fun functional issues, some problems like that, or maybe it's just in an area that is best suited to take the house down, partition the lot, maybe build a couple new homes, or just build one new home in its place, and anything in between. So if you guys out there in Listenerland have anything that would be best suited selling to a development company like ours, we'd love to hear from you. You can go to our website, which is ttmdevelopmentcompany.com, and when you go there, there's a contact us tab. Click on that, and you can send us a message, and we'll get back to you shortly thereafter. We'd love to hear from any of you guys out there that have a property like this, and hopefully we we can do a deal together. This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihue from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody out there in listening around, welcome back. This is episode 88 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We have an awesome show for you guys this week. We've got a fantastic guest. Before we get into that, I want to welcome my co-host back to the show. What's up, Steve-O? We are back on the show. Isn't it crazy how summer went to fall slash winter in like one day? (laughs) Uh, Friday to Saturday. There's a lot of leaves falling. There's a lot of crap on my driveway now that wasn't there (laughs) before. Uh, I miss summer, man. I'm I'm a summer fan. But, I know, uh, I know. Hopefully, we get a couple more blasts of it back. I'm I'm supposed to play Waverly on Wednesday. Have you ever played there, Tucker? I have not. I don't have enough rich friends, I guess, that have invited <laughs> me to. Uh, we'll call them old school rich friends to invite me. So if anybody out there listens, that's an old school rich person that's that's part of Waverly, or maybe Steve's got an opening in his foursome. Uh, hey, guess that we haven't introduced yet. Have you played Waverly before? No, I try to stay away from golf as best I can. <laughs> it's the worst sport in the history of sports. Uh, I think I feel that way because I'm absolutely terrible at it, but that that's besides the point. That, that will, that'll do it. That'll do it. Yeah. No, I played there once before. Actually, this was a charity. I went to a charity auction. It was Albertina Kerr. It was, believe it or not, three years ago, Tucker. Okay. And I was supposed to play it the next summer, and then, yeah, it, it was, it's kind of been like an act of Congress scheduling it because they won't let you just go out there by yourself. Um, right. It's me and Steve Alves. He's our uh, VP of Business Development yep. at Premier Property Group. He's our He's number a, one recruiter. Steve's um, a good guy. Yeah, we bought it together. I think I paid 500 bucks or that's what we uh, auctioned for it each. And they won't let you go out there by yourself. So it's been kind of like an act of Congress. Every summer, we're trying to align everybody's schedules along with the person that has to go out there with you. And finally, three years later, I've got it scheduled for this Wednesday, and I'm hoping the weather cooperates. I played there one other time before, and that was like 10 years ago. And I will tell you, it is an amazing course. It's probably my favorite in the area. So, Well, I play one tourney in October every year, and that's for the uh, lacrosse program that I came up in that I'm still probably the biggest supporter of financially and otherwise. So, But Floody, if you're listening... Make it in August, man, not October. Every year, it's like a crapshoot on whether or not we got to wear rain slickers or whether or not we can wear shorts out there. So, Where do you guys and play? Stone Creek. 
Stone Creek. Uh, That's a good the, one. Uh, that and, oh, what's the one past Charbonneau right there uh, on the freeway? Langdon. 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 Yeah. yeah. Langdon. So. Both good drainage courses. Stone Creek was built, I think it was only built like 15, 16 years ago. And it's it's built for drainage. Like it's if you're ever going to play in the middle of the winter, when things are wet, that's a good one to go to. It also takes like 45 minutes to get out there, which is. Yeah. yeah <laughs> but anyway, enough, enough chit chat about that. So we got a fantastic guest this week. Really excited about it. We've got some back to back. We'll call them high profile names around Portland here. Some pe- some names that you guys will definitely recognize. Uh, we had Adam Bjornsson on the show a couple weeks ago. Great guy, great show. And really, he kind of said a lot of things that I didn't think he was going to say. But I think our guest this week might do the same. So we'll see. We'll see if I can bait him into it or not. But anyway, our guest this week is from a small little town in Mississippi. He went to three colleges. He went undrafted to the NBA. The first rookie in Lakers history to then become a starter as a rookie. Two-time Greek League slam dunk champion and an NBA slam dunk contestant back in 1995. And just an all-around good guy, Mr. Antonio Harvey. Welcome to the show. Man, thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate it. So let's talk about that journey first and foremost, because, you know, I was looking up some stuff last night. We've known each other for a long time, but I didn't realize how small of a town you came (laughs) from in Mississippi. And so there's not a whole lot of, we'll call it likelihood, that a kid from that town makes it all the way to where you made it. So maybe start off there, give our listeners and myself and Steve a little background of kind of what that journey looked like you know it's interesting Tuck. it doesn't seem like it should be but the years that i was there in high school uh, 85 to 88 or yeah, 85 to 88 we actually had nine guys between the nba and the nfl that played professional sports it was a, it was just one of those outlier classes wow. that it was uh, shane matthews played at university of florida played in the nfl terrell buckley db from florida state yeah he was good we were all classmates, and there were several other guys. It was interesting. It was always the way we were brought up at that time. You know, it's a little different than it is today. We didn't have a choice, and that's kind of how we felt about it. You know, being from a small town, being exceptionally poor growing up, we didn't look at it as anything other than we have to make it. We have to put in the time to be successful. We have to make the sacrifices, and that's what we did. At least that group, we were willing to do whatever it took to be successful. And, uh, you know, it was it was not always easy. I did everything I could. I tell people all the time I overcame a lot of obstacles in my life. About 90 percent of them were self made obstacles, things I did to myself. But I was able to overcome some things and get to where I wanted to go. That's crazy that there was that kind of a bumper crop of stellar athletes that came from that group that you guys were all kind of, I guess, friends and, you know, cohorts in high school together. I mean, I would never have thought. So that's pretty crazy. So let's take you go from high school. It then looks like you went to three different colleges. So you obviously weren't highly touted talent, right? Coming out of high school or were you and you just made the wrong choice? (laughs) Well, (laughs) uh, it was a little bit of it was a little bit of both. I didn't actually play varsity basketball until my senior year. Uh, I played a little bit as a as a I was a, a swing player. They call it my junior year. And then going into my senior year, I was I was I had a really good summer. And what happened was um, a, a rival coach who was actually ended up being a really good guy, but he was still a coach at a rival high school, invited me to come with him to play in a tournament, uh, like an all star tournament that he was invited to. One of his players was invited to. And I you know, went down, I had a great tournament and that led to another opportunity that led to another opportunity. And I went from being completely unranked 
uh, as on a national level uh, to being number, I think it was number 47 in the country by the end of the summer. And so I went from zero scholarship offers to about 175 over the course of about three months. Wow. Antonio, how tall are you again? 6'10". Although 6'10, if you yeah, ask... Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're up there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, if you ask my youngest son, who's seven, and he's a stickler for numbers, but the back of my basketball card says 6'11", but I've always been 6'10". So whenever people ask, I say 6'10", and he's really quick to uh, let me know, no, dad, no, no, no. You are 6'11". You need to tell the people the truth. It's like, dude, stop. Just leave me alone. I, I know how tall I am. But, hey, if I, you know. if I had a basketball card, they'd list me at 5'11". <laughs> <laughs> hey, Antonio, that summer of senior year, did you grow some? Was that part of the equation? Or was had you already hit the 6'10"? No, I had already hit the 6'10". That's an interesting conversation. I actually was, I was 6'4", coming out of my ninth grade year, but I was 6'10", going into my 10th grade year. Wow. Yeah. And what I, t- I tell people is I think that that growth spurt, that five, six inch growth spurt really slowed me down because, you know, you have a, a certain level of coordination at 15, 16 years old. Then you have a six inch growth spurt and everything you knew about your body has to be thrown out the window. Yeah. And it, and it took me. I, you know, I really think looking back on it now, I don't think I really regained any level of physical coordination until I was probably 20, 21 years old. It took wow. four or five years to get back on track. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So then you went from zero to a whole ton of offers. <laughs> it looks like you landed at Southern Illinois then for your first year. How did that all play out then? You went there, and then it looks like you went to Connor State and ended up your career at University of Georgia. How'd that all work out? My eighth grade year, my brother was who played football and basketball. I don't know if you noticed, Tuck, but my brother played in the NFL as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've got so, a family uh, of, uh, we'll call them athletes, right? Well, my, my, my dad played in the NFL. My brother, my younger brother played college ball. But the, the, so the, the SIU story is really, it's really simple. Uh, the first guy that I met that was a college recruiter, his name was Robert McCullum. Coach Mack was the first person to put a basketball in my hands. We went to South Alabama for a basketball camp with my older brother. And while we were there, Coach Mack, who happened to be an assistant coach, Saw this tall kid. I was about 6'3", you know, 6'3", at the time, tall for an eighth grader. He asked me if I played. I told him I didn't. He went to the to the basketball store, you know, at the basketball camp, got one of the South, South Alabama basketballs, put it in my hands. So that was my first time experiencing any of that kind of stuff. Then he just kind of stayed in touch. So ninth grade year, he stayed in touch, 10th grade year. And then my 11th grade year, when I started to play a little bit, he started to see something. And he was the first guy to recruit me. He came out early, really came in hard. Uh, when he left South Alabama and went to Southern Illinois, I told my mom that wherever he was, that's where I was going to go. And that's kind of how it happened, even though I had the other scholarship offers. And there were some big names in there. I, I, we, got, we had offers from UCLA, USC. But I ended up at Southern Illinois. And they actually got investigated for, t- for illegal recruiting procedures because of all of that. Long story short, though, the loyalty that Coach McCullum showed me early on, I felt like I had to respond to and stay loyal to him. So that's how I ended up at SIU. So then how did you bounce after that to Connor State? Did you just feel like maybe the the opportunity to keep going, you had to get to a different platform in order to do that? Or just there was there was it the investigation stuff got a little too hot and heavy? <laughs> what, what was it exactly? No, it was actually Coach McCullum left and went to Kansas State. Oh, easy answer. Why yeah, did you go to Kansas State? Uh, I was going to, and then let's just say that the scholarship offer from 
Georgia was nicer than the scholarship offer from Kansas State. Gotcha. Plus, it was uh, closer to home. It was a lot closer to home. And one of my best friends from high school, Latero Green, who was a high school All-American, he was at the University of Georgia, and he came heavy. As soon as he knew I was leaving SIU, uh, he came heavy to, to recruit me. The thing is, though, I didn't actually play at Connor State. Okay. It was just a, it was a red shirt year so that Georgia wouldn't get in trouble for recruiting. Again, tampering with a recruit is illegal. Gotcha. So you basically just kind of uh, you were a normal, we'll call it, student who didn't play ball there for a short period of time. And then you finished your career at Georgia. So then obviously you finished your career there. You did well, but you went undrafted. Did you expect to get drafted at that point or what did that experience feel like? No, I, I didn't. Okay. The guy that I hired to be my agent told me really early on, look, there's a there's a very small opportunity that you're going to get drafted. If you make it to the NBA, it's going to be on grit. And that's what I prepared myself for. I didn't go to I didn't visit any any NBA teams. I didn't have any of that kind of stuff lined up. Uh, so we were preparing from the day my my college career ended. We were preparing to be successful by making it, by going hard, by being willing to sacrifice. And same thing out of high school, you know, being willing to do things that other people weren't willing to do. That was the mindset going into that summer after my senior year. I mean, obviously you had the, the talent and skills because you made it and we'll get there. But I mean, what do you think the difference is between somebody saying, yeah, Antonio Harvey's good enough to draft versus not like because it seems like oh. it's like a crapshoot, you know, really? Well, you know, it's an interesting story. So I have a lot of interesting stories. I mean, in we don't life, have to go deep. I- we don't have to go deep. I'll leave it to you. I'm just kind of well, picking and choosing here a little bit. I, I, I don't mind sharing. So one part you didn't mention is that I actually left University of Georgia after one year and ended up at, at uh, Pfeiffer University, which is a Division II school in North Carolina. And I don't mind sharing because I shared this story with kids as a cautionary tale. I left the University of Georgia because I wouldn't go to class. And if you don't go to class, you can't play. You, you have to get your books in college nowadays and even back then. Uh, so I leave in, uh, University of Georgia. I end up at Pfeiffer University. It's a, it's a Division II school back out in North Carolina. I was a great NAIA player, Division II player. I got invited to play in the NABC, which is the National Association of Basketball Coaches. They have an all-star game every year at the Final Four. I was fortunate enough to be invited, but I didn't take it serious enough. The guy I was rooming with, I won't say his name, but people listening to this show are very familiar with this guy. He was pulled over once here in Portland for smoking pot out of a Coca-Cola can. And I'll leave that alone. I'll let you guys. <laughs> and now I know why, fast forward, why you were the guy that was supposed to take care of him for a year. So I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so so the long story short, I partied too much at the NABC All-Star game. And Mitch Kupchak, the general manager of the Lakers, told me that it was a gift and a curse for the Lakers because I was actually slated to be drafted. But after the All-Star game, the, the rumors started to go around that I had an alcohol problem. And that kind of that kind of cinched it. And that's that's ultimately the reason why I didn't get drafted again. Another obstacle that I managed to put in front of myself. But you managed to get around it, obviously. So you you did you went undrafted. Did you pursue the Lakers then at that point to try out because you knew Mitch Kupchak? Is that kind of how that worked out? No, my agent made it all happen. I didn't know Mitch other than he was the assistant GM. Jerry West was the GM at the time. Mitch was the assistant GM. 
when you're an undrafted free agent, you kind of have the option to go where you want to go. Kind of like, you know, a real estate agent when they leave one company, you know, they can choose where they want to go after the fact. So that, that's kind of what it was. We looked around the NBA. We looked at what guys were leaving, what teams, at what position. And we made a, a conscious decision to go to the Lakers because A.C. Green, who a Portland guy, he was with the Lakers. He left to go to Phoenix. And when he left, it left a void at that power forward position. And we felt like that was a good opportunity for me to go in, have a legitimate shot at making the team. And, and Warren, Warren Legary, my agent at the time, he actually actually still my agent, he said, hey, this is the best opportunity out there. I think we should go with this one. And that's what we did. Antonio, what year did you go into the Lakers? Was that 95? 93. 93. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember that time, that era. And that was right around the time Magic Johnson was coming out with that he has AIDS, right? Were you there yes. for that? I was there. I came in the next year. So he retired 92. I came in in 93. Gotcha. He was so already gone. He was, But in an interesting twist, he came back and coached the last 15 or 20 games of my rookie season. Love Magic to death. He's a horrible coach. Great <laughs> <laughs> yeah. guy. Horrible coach. Usually great players are bad coaches, by the way. There are exceptions, but that, well, was, those two together always directly correlate. I've, I've always said the same thing. The only guy that I think was a great coach that was a great player was Larry Bird, and he wasn't actually a great coach. It was Rick Carlisle, who was his number two guy, that ran, kind of ran the show, and Bird just took a lot of credit for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you can be a great player and a great. I just don't know if the mindsets are right to be able to. It's really a people skills thing, right? Because at a certain point, you've got a. There's a lot of humility in being coached sometimes, and that can be tough when you're. You know, it's hard. And it's, and, uh, go ahead. Go ahead and I think there's an element, uh, and I think that applies to our business too. I mean, sometimes if I'm in front of a newer agent. And, you know, they're they're just not getting it. You know, the the frustration kind of seeps in like this is so obvious. How do you not know what you're, you know, A plus B equals C. And if you do this, it'll this will be the result of it. And so for I think in, in, in the sports world, a great player, they're just wired to get it. They have that high IQ of the sport. They they also just have that natural ability and maybe even work and not maybe and work ethic. And so when people are something less than that, it it's hard for them to relate. It becomes frustrating. And I think yeah. that, that's that's actually what happened with Magic was, and the team we had, by the way, was not very good. We had five rookies, uh, myself, Nick Van Exel, George Lynch, and a couple of other guys from the CBA had come up. So we weren't a very good team. And Magic was used to playing with guys like, uh, you know, Michael Cooper and, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, all these megastars and all-stars. And now you got a bunch of guys who don't even know the basic rules of the NBA. And I think for him, it was really frustrating for, this, for the reasons you just said. That should have been the most obvious thing in the world, Antonio. How do you not see that? And yeah. even more important, he couldn't teach it because for him, it was just there. He didn't have to look for it. It was just easily apparent. Uh, yeah. I do that sometimes, and I don't. I, I coach basketball, but I always stay away from the younger kids because what's obvious to me isn't obvious to them, and I take it for granted sometimes, and I end up getting frustrated. So I stay away from really, really young kids. Antonio, do you still hoop? Do you play pickleball or anything? Absolutely not. In fact, Steve, I just pulled the <laughs> muscle because you mentioned it. Like it's that bad. <laughs> no. I, 
I um I'll be the first to admit I am very guilty of not being what people wanted me to be as a basketball player. Meaning, I, I love playing basketball and it was a great profession, but ultimately that's all it was for me. It was a job. In order to be that next level of successful in professional sports, you, it has to be all-consuming. You look at Kobe, you look at Mike, you look at LeBron, you look at these guys, it's all they do, it's all they know, it's all they wanna be. I wasn't brought up in a family like that. You know, my mom was was really big on, hey, basketball is what you do, not who you are. Don't let it over-consume you. And because of that, I had a good career, I had a long career, but I was never able to reach that that level that I probably physically should have been able to, but mentally, I wanted to do other things. I wanted to learn about other stuff, and and I think that helped me back. So would you say it's fair to say you don't have the love of the game emblazoned in you, possibly like some of those guys? Absolutely I mean, fair. Yeah, yeah. Because you said you said it was something you did for work, and that that would probably translate to why you, here you know here now today you, you you probably don't get out there and play as much as you know maybe someone else would. No, I, I, no, I love to watch the game, and I really love teaching the game. But I have no desire to get out there and play. Uh, and part of it, too, is I feel like that's that's a part of who I was. That, And if I still try to play and still try to get out there, I'm trying to hold on to ancient history. I don't want to do that. And that would be frustrating, especially knowing how good you used to be. That would that, That's why I retired, by the way, Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I, in my mid my mid thirties, I I I, uh, I hung up the the shoes, and it was because I was I wasn't getting faster, I wasn't getting better, <laughs> and and I was like, okay, here comes the decline. Let's 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 do this like Michael Jordan did the first time, and and I'm not coming back like he did three other times. Not that I was anything on Michael Jordan's level, but I decided that was when I decided Antonio to go to golf because I was like, you know what, I bet I can keep getting better at this sport for the next 30, 40 years, and and I have so. Yeah, it's oh. a, it, once you reach that pinnacle, it's hard on the backside. I, I used to snowboard at a very high level, somewhat professionally in the '90s. So it's hard for me to go now as a 38-year-old guy that feels pretty beat up every time I take a lick, you know. And like, I just don't do it nearly at the level that I was. So it's kind of anticlimactic, even if it's like an epic day and everything. Like, I just feel like. I can't do the tricks and the things that I used to do. And so it's fun, but it, there's always that backside of that hill, you know? And I think that's for anybody and anything. Once you reach a pinnacle and that you put your everything into it, it just, it just has a different feel. It really does. Tucker, you still play hoops at club sport. I do. Right? It's my release from my kids because yeah. they drive yeah. me effing crazy sometimes. So I got to be <laughs> able to get my, get my mind right. And I don't do the treadmill. So I'm a three point line to three point line guy these days. I know how not to get hurt, you know, and, yeah. and still get oh, my you're a solid on, so. player. You always have been. Yeah. See, I'm a, I'm more of a half court to half court kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning you don't move. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's funny. A couple more things I want to talk about. One is you had quite a career. You ended up here with the blazers during 99 through Oh one. What about that experience, I guess, ultimately led you to put down some roots here and end up back here? Because that was a short stint in your career, really. Well, I think it boiled down to the people. The organization, obviously, is a great organization, and I have nothing but great things to say about them. But it's the people here in Portland. And I, you know, I played in L.A., I played in Atlanta, uh, I played in Vancouver, Seattle. I played in cities that had multiple, multiple professional sports teams, and it seemed like you were always battling to be somebody in those cities. Here in Portland, if you're a trailblazer, that makes you somebody right off the bat. 
And, and even for a guy like me, I didn't play much as a trailblazer, but people still remember. And I think that's that was part of it. Uh, looking at the opportunities that I felt like would present themselves in a city like Portland versus a city like L.A. And then I think the final piece of the puzzle was simply cost of living. You know, 1999, 2000, you could buy a house here for a decent, a really nice house for a really decent price. Things have changed a little bit, obviously. But that was kind of the big thing for me was where is my money going to stretch the longest? What's going to give me the most longevity for the career that I had? Uh, and it came down to two cities, San Antonio and Portland. And I never played in San Antonio, but you could buy a house in San Antonio that was absolutely fantastic for two or three hundred thousand dollars back then. Uh, and so it, I was we thought about San Antonio. Then I re-signed my contract with the Trailblazers and that kind of solidified it. I bought my home here and I've been here ever since. A couple things, Antonio. The expression that comes to mind as you're describing your decision to be here in Portland, I've often heard people say it's better to be a big fish in a small pond. <laughs> and I think that's kind of what you're saying. I, yeah, in here in Portland, NBA is all we got. So it is a huge deal. And and yeah, you know, down in LA, there's baseball, there's basketball, there's movie stars, there's, you know, there's lots of money, there's huge industry. So, so you were on the Blazer team that almost beat LA and until we uh, had the dry spell, I mean, it was like one of the darkest games of my ex- They actually put it up as the number one play in Laker history last night before LeBron came on the floor and they did the top 10. And there was the Kobe crossover. He gets in the lane. He throws up the lob and Shaq yeah. throws down. And then he goes to double point. You're uh, done yeah. with. And I, I remember watching that game actually with my college roommates. And I threw a keg off my front porch because I was so mad because oh we blew a 13-point lead in the fourth quarter. I was so and mad. We had and come they were back. big Laker fans. Oh, it killed me. We had been down 0-3, right? And we came all the way back to game seven and we're about yep. to win game seven, which has never been done before. Yep. And and by the way, if we beat LA, you know we would have got the title because I think it was Indiana. The Sixers, right? No, it was Indiana. Indiana. Yeah. 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 It was yeah. uh yeah, it was uh of all the things that have happened in my career, I think that's the most disappointing because champions are the most valuable thing in the world. You know, you got a guy that's on a championship caliber team. And there's opportunities that present themselves. If I win that championship with the with the Trailblazers that year, number one, that team stays together for a few more years. Number two, they break that Lakers team up. So their dynasty never happens. You win a championship, and the best example I can give is Scott Williams from the Chicago Bulls. He was no better than I was, maybe not as good as I was, but he played for the Bulls. He won three championships. The 76ers, after that, that last championship, in the, I think it was 96 through 99, they gave him $42 million for five years. He never got off the bench. Champions are valuable. People yeah. want, a, want to be around. And, and Steve, you know this, and Tucker, I'm sure you know this too. It's that mentality of a champion. Even in real estate, when you have a champion on your team, you know you've got a champion on your team. He's going to lead the right way. He's going to push people in the right ways. He's going to communicate the right way. He's going to do all those things that lead to success. And and that that's the value in it. We gave up that 15 point lead. And yeah, so the rest of my career, I had to, you know, three or four more teams and struggles to make teams. It, it's, it's, it changed the yeah. it pivoted for everybody. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I remember, I remember Scotty Pippen saying in an interview that he was, that was the strongest team he'd ever played for, which was obviously a huge statement, whether it was factual or not. I mean, it was a solid team that year. Oh, it was um, unbelievable. 
Yeah, it was probably the most heartbreaking thing that's ever happened to the Blazers. And there's side been note. some there's been some close seconds. Yeah, a, <laughs> side note, I'm the drafts that have been close seconds. Is so ahead, is is Rasheed Wallace as crazy as he appeared sometimes, or does he just get wrapped up in the game and, and he's really just a normal chill guy outside of it? Really, man, I'll tell you what, Rasheed Wallace might be the one of the best teammates I ever had. You know, people people only got to see him on the court and they made judgments based on that. But she's the kind of guy when we were playing together here in Portland and even after after I retired and he was still here. If I call she and said, hey, man, it's it's my daughter's birthday. Nazir, his son is invited. You want to bring him over? Not only would he show up with his son, but he would show up and stay the entire time and hang out with the kids. And just he was he was one of the like I said, the best human beings you'll ever meet. I feel bad that people only judged him based on what they could see, but they just didn't give him a chance to be himself. Uh, yeah, just just salt of the earth guy. I can't say enough positive things about Roscoe. Well, that's why I bring him up because I figured there had to be another side that uh, oh, man. we don't see. So solid, solid player. My favorite phrase from him, and I and it's still quoted till this day. <laughs> you guys know what I'm going to say, don't you? <laughs> the ball don't played, lie. Ball don't <laughs> no, lie. Both, both teams played well. Both, both teams played well. Yeah. Uh, bo- both teams played hard. CTC. Uh, both teams played hard. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and ball don't lie. Those are yeah. three class. And people in the NBA still use those quotes. Yeah. Right now to this day. Yeah. No, the ball don't lie. I hear that. Uh, you hear that on a regular basis till till today. He should start a, a just sidebar. He should start a clothing brand with just his hashtags of his sayings. They probably do well. You know. <laughs> and you know what? Ball don't lie applies to anything. You yeah. know, uh, somebody crosses you the wrong way. And then, you know, hey, guy driving down the street, yeah, swings by you, flips you the bird, hits a light pole, ball don't lie. Yeah, or or <laughs> Steve's uh, golfing outing next week, ball don't lie, Steve, on close. Hey. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's funny. So then you obviously wrap up in the league. That was a big fork. A couple more years, kind of bouncing around. We met putting together an ABA franchise here in Portland uh, that was a colorful experience to yes. say the least. With some uh, characters, which is why I say that. But we managed to get a few games in before it ended up dissolving, and it just didn't work out, unfortunately. But uh, it was a it was a it was a good experience to begin with, and it just kind of unraveled, unfortunately. But then you got a great opportunity to become the announcer for the Blazers. How did that all come together? Mike Barrett, who was who was doing the pre and post game show at the time, he lived kind of in my neighborhood, and he was out with his wife Shelly one one day walking the dog. And I was sitting on my front porch with my ex-wife and he passed by and he said, hey, I've been meaning to talk to you. We need a co-host or somebody to come in and do some of the, the pre and post game shows. Would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm not doing anything. Makes perfect sense to me. Come in. I'd be more than happy to. And one of the things he said, and this is one of those pride points, one of those things that I learned from my mom was you always treat everyone as if you're going to need them one day, even if you don't think you ever are. You always treat everyone as if there's you're going to need something from them. And that's the way I live my life. And I treated MB the same way. And I was blessed that he remembered that. He came in. I did a season of the pre and post game show. And then that summer, Snapper Jones, God rest him, he, he got sick. I don't know if you, remember, if you guys remember. He was doing national games. And he looked sick on the TV. He had appendicitis. His appendix, appendix burst. And he got really sick. And as the summer went on, it became more and more clear that he wasn't going to be able to continue with the Trailblazers as their broadcaster. So I just got on the horn with Dick Vardonica, who was the head of broadcasting at the time. And I called him every Monday and every Friday. 
every Monday to ask him how his weekend was and let him know that I was interested in the job. And every Friday to ask him how his week went and to let him know that I was interested <laughs> in the job. And, and, and on an interesting side note, Steve, I'm sure you'll, you'll enjoy this. I have a few real estate agents that I'm, I've been trying to get in the door with. I call them every Friday and every <laughs> Monday with the exact same thing. And it's just to let them know that, hey, I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to be here every day when you need me. When you're ready to utilize my skill set, my services, I'll be here waiting on that opportunity. Love the persistence. Good job. And it worked. It, it worked. Did. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, I think he gave me the job because he got tired of hearing from me. But that's okay. Whatever got me the gig, that's all I care about. Yeah. What was that transition like? Um, you know, obviously, you sat next to a, a highly touted guy calling the games. But overall, just that experience of putting a microphone in front of you, kind of like we have right now. Was there a pretty heavy learning curve or did you feel like you took to it pretty well? Uh, for, yeah, I, I would say it probably took 10 or 15 games for me to really understand what my job was. But I, I give Wheels all the credit in the world. He is the best in the business as far as I'm concerned. And he made the transition relatively seamless. He carried so much of the load that all I had to do was literally get my thoughts together. And it took some time. It's, it's not an easy job. People think you just show up and you talk about basketball. There's a lot of preparation. There's a lot of ancillary things that go into it. And then you have to be able to get your thoughts out in a concise manner because I only had four or five seconds to say what I had to say. And then I had to pass it back to him. So it, it, it took some time. It probably took a quarter of a season, 10 to 15, maybe even 20 games for me to get comfortable. But wheels made it easy. And once I got comfortable, it just began to get better and better from there. Yeah. And ultimately, that was a great turning point for your career here in Portland because it, you know, like you said, when you're a blazer, you're everything in this town. And when you're a blazer announcer, it, you might as well be a blazer as well. You know, <laughs> I mean, you're recognized. I mean, Barrett had more commercials than blazers did for a while there. Right. So, <laughs> well, that's, that's uh yes. And there was a reason for that. At one point, you know, when I retired, I was 33. When I got the blazers job, I was 35 and I was still young. I was still pretty active. I was actually still playing ball at that time. And they would send me out to speak to kids or social engagements because the team at the time was going through a bit of a trailblazers. <laughs> yeah. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I don't use that, that was term. But 2005. I had season tickets. I, I know this well. I had two season tickets in 2005. It's in my. I had just started to do pretty well in the mortgage business at that point. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna get some season tickets. And I made I made a rookie mistake of getting the entire season right. Ooh, yes. All all home games, and. And they were so bad that year. Like I could not give them away. I I, I would call clients up. I would call friends up. Hey, you want to go to a Blazer game? I'm like, oh, no, I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> and so I quickly realized next year I went to half season. And, and here and now today, I, I think I have like a quarter season. And and even that is, you know, that's about perfect, I think. But, but I, that was a rough time for the Blazers in 2005, 2006. They were, they were kind of, you know, hitting that bottom. That was my rookie year as a broadcaster. It was so bad. <laughs> uh, I, we still tell the story. Wills and I laugh now because it's been so long ago. We played the Phoenix Suns early in the in the season that year. I think it was first or second game of the season. And we had Sebastian Telfair at point guard, Martel Webster, Jerry Jack. Jack. Yes, a yeah. bunch of really yeah. young guys who couldn't play at that level yet. And Steve Nash was killing us so bad that by the end of the game, 
you would have thought Wills and I were Phoenix Suns announcers because we were just <laughs> all over Steve Nash and everything he did. But yeah, that was a that was a tough season. But that's when I knew that I could do this because if I could convince fans to continue to listen to that, I can convince them to do anything. Yeah, yeah, and they did, and we do, and uh, you know yes. here we are today. Although I'm, I, I told Adam in the last show, I feel like we're at a kind of a precipice with the team this season. And I, I feel like a meltdown is inevitable to uh, reposition the pieces. But uh, I, ho- I hope not, but I just have a feeling. I picked the wins within one win the last three seasons, like to how many wins we we're going to get. Even when the uh, NBA.com guy said we were going to have 29 wins two years ago, and that was just <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, but um, I, I just – I don't know. I feel like uh, this year might be interesting. I hope we do well, but I just – I feel like we didn't gain enough – to there to be a whole lot of momentum. So we'll see. We'll see. But You know what? I, I, I say this to people and having been around him for five or six years now, you can't count Damian Lillard out. No. You just can't. He's such a – he's not only a great player, he's a really good human being. And then you put a guy like CJ next to him, it's hard to count those two guys out. I, I just refuse to. So for me, they're always on the precipice of winning the championship or being out of the playoffs because they've got those two guys on the roster. Yeah, mm-hmm. it comes down to making ball don't lie. Ball don't, <laughs> don't lie. Ball don't lie. We make the shots. We win games. We move forward. Miss them. We don't. So we'll see how it goes this year. Hopefully they can shoot a high percentage. They're always entertaining. I love watching them. I'm sure Steve will get a lot of enjoyment out of his season tickets this year. That's for sure. But let's talk next chapter. So now uh, you've segued. You've got a few things you're involved with, but I want to focus in on the chapter with Director's Mortgage. What does that look like now? And the, what is it that you're doing for him? Well, it's it's been a learning curve. We'll say that I, I do feel like the things that come natural to me will ultimately lead to success in the industry. One, I'm persistent. You know, like I said, I'm every every Monday, every Friday, the agents that I deal with are going to hear from me, no matter what. Two, I'm willing to do things. I'm willing to go hard and work hard. Uh, and I think that you know, over time, I'm only six months into the industry, so I know it's going to take a little longer than that. Uh, but I'm, I'm working hard. I'm learning a lot. They've got a great group of guys at directors. It's a great company. They're really philanthropic in terms of being involved in the community. Uh, we've got some great partners that that we lean on and that lean on us within the industry. So I think for me, it's just about figuring out exactly what the industry is. And I'm going through that process like any young mortgage broker would. But over time, I think that my willingness to be consistent, my willingness to, to work hard, are going to pay dividends. Yeah, I think uh, Steve could attest to the, the, you know, it's it's a challenge in the first six months, year to really oh, kind of yeah. get your feet wet, not only in terms of context, but just grasping all the concepts, right? I mean, because there, there's a lot to the mortgage side of the business. Real estate side is easy in comparison, really. Oh my I mean, gosh, reality yeah. There's a lot of layers to that onion. There's a lot of layers to that onion. I remember I want to say it was about my one year anniversary being in the mortgage business where it was like this aha moment. I was like, you know, I think I'm getting this business. Prior to that, you would have scenarios and you'd go to people. They kind of tell you what to do and then you'd run back and do it. And then you'd have a new scenario and and that kept happening over and over. But there's just so many different complexities to the business. I mean, there's everything you got to know about credit, everything you got to know about taxes and income. There's everything you got to know about programs and structure and and then you got to put them all together 
It's a complex business. One thing you're doing right, Antonio, that I didn't do and made it harder for me was I was learning on my own. I, I didn't, I wasn't on a team. So I was practicing in real world time with my own clients with, you know, without the, the, the benefit of watching and observing and, and having somebody really close that was feeding you those clients or, or, or providing scenarios and helping with that guidance. You are on Jeff Waller's team, correct? Yes. Such a good guy. I, I was joking as we were before we were on the air that he's somebody that you'd trust with your 16 year old daughter to babysit her. I mean, he's just a, he is he's a classy guy, such a teddy bear, nice guy. And, and I mean that in the most positive way. He doesn't have a mean bone in his body. He's he's a veteran of the business. I used to personally work with him. I've done a lot of deals with Jeff over the years. I sent him a lot of business and gosh, you, you couldn't pick the better team to work on. And you're uh, an awesome addition to that. I appreciate that. And I agree completely. Uh, Jeff is, he's, he's one of, he's the only reason ultimately, well, one of the only reasons that I'm at directors. I mean, there were opportunities to go other places, but Jeff is one of those guys that when you're around him, he makes you feel positive energy. And I'm big on the energy. I can't be around people that are dragging me down. Uh, I need people that when I look at him, it's like, you know what, let's go get it. Let's all go get it. Let's all be successful. And the other, other thing I really like about Jeff is he is that he is a team first guy. You know, his success is is wrapped in my success is wrapped in his success and, and he sees it that way and so do i so that, that's been really really interesting and really great to be around and directors is has shown me that as well everybody there seems to be working in the right direction the same direction and, and success i think is is just a matter of time for me personally in the industry getting to know agents and it's one of the things that that i'm dealing with now as a new agent and i'm sure every new agent deals with it this is a big transaction. It's a big transaction for the individual, right? And and Steve, as a real estate agent, it's a big transaction for you. You know, <laughs> if, if this doesn't go through, if something should fall fall short, you don't get paid. And that's a big paycheck. Mm-hmm. So one of the issues, if, if, if I want to call it that, has been convincing agents that I can get it done. You know, hey, how many, how many deals have you done? Uh, well, you see, what had happened was they don't want to hear that. They want to know that I'm getting deals done so that I they can know I'm going to get their deal done. And that's been the, the challenge is convincing the agents that I will get it done. And I think part of that is the Mondays and Fridays, making sure I reach out so they see that consistency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I noticed, too, and because I started back when um, the market was crazy, same time as Steve and uh, the, the relationships. And this is kind of something that everybody that's listening should learn from. But. Agents in particular at that time did not value the relationship aspect of having a good lender or a good team nearly as much as they should have. They looked at lenders as discardable, we'll call them, right? Uh, replaceable. And the reality is, is that having a a great lender team that is your go-to, it's a, it's a huge thing. And as the market shifts and as everybody isn't as smart as it makes us look when the market is good, <laughs> people start to recognize that that is a tremendous value. And as, as the pendulum starts to swing back here a little bit, which it is, it'll become easier and easier for you to kind of build and, and kind of foster those relationships. Because I noticed that heavily within my own business is kind of the market shifted over time. Yeah. And you pick such a great company. Director's Mortgage is is who I use and who I refer exclusively. It's who PPG is partnered with as well. And they're just such a, first of all, their brand recognition is, is second to none in, in Portland. I mean, you can't, you know, swing a dead cat by its tail without hitting a billboard or some type of radio commercial or the Blazers partnership. And so there's great brand recognition, but way beyond that, 
what I appreciate about Directors Mortgage and their leadership and, and their, their loan officers there is they're so realtor focused. They always have been and always, always will be. There's so many in this business over the years, Antonio, who they say they're realtor focused when they need to be, then rates drop a half percent and they're like, they, they forget their realtors and they're, they're all about the refis and they're burning and turning and oh yeah, I, on all these deals, we don't need to you know be nice to realtors and we don't need to add value to realtors. But directors doesn't doesn't get dist distracted that way. They've always been realtor focused, purchase focused. How can they add value to their agents while simultaneously, of course, adding value to the the consumer? And that's the interesting thing about what you do, Antonio. That is different than realtors. We are pretty consumer facing, right? Like our our client is truly the buyers and sellers, and with few exceptions of who else we focus our attention on in the mortgage business. You actually have two directions to face. You have the consumers that you have to take care of, of course, but you've also got the realtors. And truth be told, I think the realtors are the more important ones with the understanding that if you take care of the taking care of the realtor also means taking care of the consumer as well. So directors is great in that regards. And you couldn't have aligned with a better company as well there. So use those tools. I will say one piece of advice I'd give to you is be persistent, but be persistent in adding value. I've seen a lot of a lot of loan officers over the years, and I've seen ones that are successful. You've got to be good at it's. I'll use an analogy of of basketball, right? You got to be good at the fundamentals. The fundamentals right. in basketball is you know don't dribble it off your foot out of bounds, don't pass to the wrong player, right? Fundamentals in as a loan officer is close on time, smoothly, no surprises, do what you say, know your programs. Those are the fundamentals. Once you master those fundamentals and then do the fancy stuff, right? In basketball, wouldn't can you imagine if somebody did a you know 360 alley-oop slam dunk, but then dribbles off their foot 10 seconds later, right? It would completely negate all the fancy stuff you did. So in the mortgage business, master those fundamentals and then add value and do you know do the creative, innovative stuff. The directors is so good at, by the way, and, and it is always leading the pack. Their, their guarantee of earnest money, you know, if should there be a sale fail due to financing, that is such an innovative product and it's one, it's a great one to promote. But yeah, good stuff. Uh, Steve, are you watching youth basketball today? Is that where that analogy came from? Because I have seen <laughs> kids that can do 360 layups but can't dribble up the court. It happens every <laughs> single And nothing is more frustrating to me as a coach than that. I, I agree. And, and that's where, that's one of the areas that I want to help uh, with the agents is is I want to become an an ally, uh, a friend, but also a marketer because you know I'm I'm blessed. The 12 years I spent on the in the broadcast booth created a following, especially here in Portland. And one of the things that I've tried to bring to the table when I talk to real estate agents is you know you have listings, you have all of these things that you need help with. I want to be that help. I want to be that guy you can call when when you have an open house and you want people to see that open house. I'm more than happy to show up with my my uh, iPhone and my my handheld gimbal and let's walk around. Let's show people what you're doing and who you are and what type of person you are. Uh, we just started. Directors has given me the opportunity to do some some stuff in terms of semi. We won't call it broadcast broadcast, but you know we're doing a segment called Tuesdays with Tone, where we kind of go through the industry. Hey. Get your yep. IGTV channel now, Tuesdays <laughs> with Tone. I'm telling you, get it. Beat's going to be know, huge. It's, yeah. it's yeah. funny. We were, we were, I was talking to them the other day. I said, we need a DMTV. We need Director's Mortgage TV. 
let's really do something that the industry hasn't seen before, where agents and mortgage brokers and local businesses, we can all come together and really expose the world to who we are. Yeah, that's awesome. We have PPG TV, by the way, and we, and, and it, works. It, it works great. It does work great. You know, Antonio, I have a, I have a suggestion for you because I'm watching you with your newfound role in the business. And here's a suggestion, a great way. I think your, you and your team could add value to agents, help them do client appreciation parties with you there. And, and you being the part of the calling for that, every agent that you guys work with, you know, typically likes to do something once a year where they bring in their their best clients and schmoozes them and adds value to them and, and gives them some kind of love and appreciation. You would be such an asset in that process. Just your your celebrity and your being well known. I could see that as being a, a, a really cool component there. Well I just wrote that down just so you know. <laughs> uh, I met with Tucker when we first when I first got started and he gave me a list of things and I've tried to implement a, you know some of that stuff as well. It's such a tremendous opportunity. One of the things that I enjoy the most about the opportunity is the, the chance to help people. You know, w- you know, people look at it as such a transactional thing, but it's not. If done correctly, mortgage broker, real estate agent, it is a relationship-based entity. It should be. If it's not, then you're doing something wrong. You know, when people have a mortgage, I, I spoke with a young lady yesterday. She's going through a divorce. You know, I'm, I'm, so I'm not able to do her loan right now. But I told her, we're going to talk every week until your divorce is final. And when it's final, we'll figure out the best course of action, whether it's staying in the home you're in, whether it's moving to a new place. doesn't matter to me. I'm going to help get you through this process. And more importantly, I've been through a divorce. So on that day when you're not feeling good, when you're feeling a little down about yourself, feel free to give me a call and just let me know what's happening. And maybe something that's happening to you at that moment I've been through and I can help you get through it. Love it. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, this, is a, this is a people business at the end of the day on all sides, on all aspects of it. And if you're good with the, the people side of it, the rest of it takes care of itself is what I found. Uh, there's mm-hmm. no question about that. Mm-hmm. So, well, hey, this has been a fantastic show. Tone, want to thank you so much for taking some time to do this. Before we exit, though, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you, follow you, and kind of learn more if they want to hook up with you on the mortgage side or just otherwise? Well, I'm on Facebook. That's kind of my go-to. I'm still learning the Instagram and Twitter, although I've been told if I don't start Instagram tweeting and Instagramming, um, you're losing my audience. But Twitter is tone underscore Harvey. Same thing with Instagram. Uh, you can reach me at my office number, 503-547-9625, or email me, antonio.harvey at directorsmortgage.net. Any one of those ways work. I'm looking forward to meeting new people. I'm looking forward to helping new clients. And I'm looking forward to really getting to know real estate agents, especially people who want to grow and learn and work together. Fantastic. I'll leave it with this as we exit. Hashtag both teams played hard. (laughs) (laughs) The ball don't lie. (laughs) And cut the check. CTC. Cut the check. (laughs) Well, all right. We'll see you all on the next one. Thanks again for listening to our show and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.